So, uh, one of Dinah's favorite books is this book called uh, The Monster at the End of the Book. And at the very beginning of the book, Grover from Sesame Street is on the page, and he tells the reader that at the end of the book, there's going to be a monster. And uh, for those of you who, who haven't read it, I have to warn you that I am going to spoil the ending. So hopefully that won't ruin your nights. But Grover says, uh, there's a monster at the end of the book. And then as you kind of move through the book, Grover figures out that if he stops you from turning pages, then you won't get to the end of the book and you won't have to encounter the monster that's at the end of it. So he spends the rest of the book trying to convince the reader, who in this case is a two and a half year old girl, not to turn any pages. And Dinah, like I'm sure most kids do, just get more and more and more and more and more excited about turning the pages. And then you get to the end of the book. You get all the way to the end because you've disregarded everything that Grover Grover has said up to this point. And then you find out that there is actually a monster at the end of the book. And if you've read it, you know that the monster is Grover. Grover's blue, he's hairy, he's fuzzy, he's got big eyes. He's a monster. But the whole book, he's, he's been on your side. He's been, he's been trying to protect you from this monster, only to find out at the end that, that he's the monster. He's the monster at the end of the book. And what that shows us is that even though that's who he is, even though he, he is, in fact, a monster, he doesn't act like a monster. He doesn't do the things that monsters do. He doesn't hide under a kid's bed. He doesn't come out of the closet. He's, he's trying to protect them. So he's a good monster. But still, there's that disconnect. There's, there's that disconnect between, between who he is and what he does. And we see the same exact thing in the world all the time. We see fathers who are dads genetically or biologically. They've, they've fathered children, but then they, they leave. They abandon their, their son or their daughter, and they don't do the things that dads do. And so they are a father. Some guy might be a dad, but he doesn't do the thing that dads do. We might know somebody who's a pastor or a minister who is supposed to be a, a spiritual leader among the people. But then it comes out that he's cheated on his wife or some other huge moral issue is uncovered. And you find out this, this person who's supposed to be a spiritual leader, a moral example, isn't. And so they, they are a pastor, they are a spiritual leader, but they don't do the things that even any follower of Christ would do, let alone someone who's supposed to be above reproach. Or doctors. Doctors are supposed to save lives. They've committed, they, they've signed an oath or, or said an oath that they'll do no harm. And yet, some doctors kill people, either through a assisted suicide or abortion. And so, they, they are doctors, but they don't practice medicine. They don't save lives, they destroy life. 
And we, we see this happen all over the world. This, this difference between who people are and what they do. And the only place we don't see that, the only place where there's not that divide, is in the person of Christ. In the person of Christ, we always see what He does line up with who He is. And tonight, tonight we come to a passage where we're going to see this and see how important it is. And the problem is we, as people, uh, want to, to pit these things against each other. We want to uh, emphasize either who he is or we want to emphasize what he does. And so, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm underwater in here. Um, some people want to emphasize the fact of, of who Jesus is. And so they'll say, Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's the Savior of the world. And we just need to go out and, and preach that message and meet the spiritual needs of people. And that's, that's all we need to do. We just need to focus on who He is. That, that's what matters. That's what's most important. Other people say, no, that's not it. We need to focus on what He does. He's, he's a healer. He, he casts out demons. He, he serves people. And so we need to go out and meet all their physical needs. That's what's most important. If, if we don't do that, then we're not doing what Christ did. But this text that we're going to come to tonight and next week shows us that we can't split these things apart. We can't pit them against each other. We have to have both of them in order to really understand what discipleship is. In order to really understand who Jesus is and what He does. Let's go ahead and read our passage. And we're going to read the whole passage even though we're just covering part of it tonight. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 24, 23. Sorry. If you don't have a Bible, there, there's some in the, in the rows. And in those Bibles, tonight's passage is on page 813. And just as kind of a, a preface... I was uh, going to cover both these passages tonight, and then I woke up this morning and drank way too much coffee and decided to just cover the first half. So, hopefully it will make sense. So let's read the passage. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. 
And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world. God, and what we read about in the Gospels isn't something that's made up by Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. But they're telling the story of what your Son did in our world. So tonight we ask that, Lord, you would help us see him in it. Both who he is and what he does. And that that would change us. That that would confront us. And that we would know more of you. And our faith would be increased in you. Because of seeing him in the text. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name. Amen. So, the main point of, of these, this, this whole chunk of Matthew is that true discipleship is about seeing who he is and what he does, and then responding in faith. True discipleship is about seeing both who he is and what he does, and responding in faith. And about that, you'll probably notice that I didn't say responding in faith and obedience. But that's what I mean. See, every time that faith is talked about in the Bible, obedience is assumed. It's, it's always connected. True faith is obedient faith. And so when I say that true discipleship is seeing who Jesus is and seeing what he does and then responding in faith, I'm talking about a faith that produces obedience. If, if it doesn't do that, then it's not really faith. We, we've missed something. And so that's what we're going to see in these two texts and tonight, we're going to take a look at this first chunk, this Jesus calming the storm. And then next week, we'll kind of pick up with the sequel to it of what happens immediately afterwards. So last week, we wrapped up with uh, the, these two disciples, or potential disciples, we don't really know how they responded, came up to Jesus and said, uh, I want to follow you. So Jesus is going away from the crowds. All these people have been crowding around him and he wants to leave. He wants to go somewhere else to get away from them. And so he's getting into a boat. These two guys step forward. Jesus talks to them. And then this week he's, he's finally making it to the boat. And so the first thing Matthew tells us is that Jesus got in the boat and his disciples followed him. And even though this is just kind of a, a small little detail that Matthew gives us, it's really significant. It's something that we really need to see. You see, because Jesus knows what's going to happen when they get out on the water. He, he knows where he's leading his disciples. When, when they follow him on that boat, he's responsible for them. He, he knows where they're going. He knows that a storm's coming. He knows what's going to happen. His disciples wouldn't be on that boat if it wasn't for him. And we know that he knows this because we see him in the Gospels knowing things that, that no man could possibly know. Jesus knows 
other people's thoughts. As we move through Matthew, we're going to see that he knows what's going on in someone's heart. We're going to see that he knows exactly when and exactly how he's going to die. He knows stuff that that no human being should know or could know. And in next week's passage, we're going to find out why. These these two demon-possessed guys are going to give us the answer. They're going to tell us that he knows these things because he's the Son of God. The disciples can't figure that out, but they can And so Jesus takes his disciples out there. He puts them in harm's way because he knows that even though the storm is coming, he has the power to take them safely through this storm, safely through this crisis. But I think even though he knows that, we still have to ask why. Why why does he allow his disciples to follow follow him into that? Why does he he put them in harm's way? Why does he take them out on a lake in the middle of a storm where there's a significant chance they're all going to die without him? I think he does that because he wants to do two things. And they're really closely connected. The first is that Jesus wants to reveal more of himself to them. He wants to show them more of who he is. And as he does that, he's going to do a second thing. He's going to increase their faith in him. So he takes them out there because he wants to show them more of who he is. He wants to show them that he has authority over the wind and the seas. And as he does that, he wants their faith in who he is to be increased. He wants them to to see what he does and to know more of who he is. That's what's important. And I think the same thing happens for us. You know, we may not be stuck out in a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, but we certainly go through struggle. We certainly go through crises. We certainly go through problems in our lives. And so, Jesus, I think, does the same thing for us when we go through stuff. He wants to both increase our faith in Him and reveal more of Himself to us. So when we face things like sickness or disease, I think that Jesus reveals himself to us as not only the one who can heal all our our spiritual problems, but also as the one who can and does heal our physical problems. He's going to reveal that as the one who created us. Colossians tells us that, that all things, including our bodies, were created through him and for him. And so as things like that happen to us, our faith in Him is going to be increased for who He is. And, even if we're not healed, simply the fact that that Jesus is healing all of creation. The Bible tells us that He's restoring, He's renewing all of it, including us. So that one day, nothing and, and no one is ever going to get sick. So when we go through things like sickness and disease, those things should be shown to us in the Word, through the Spirit, through the Gospel. It's the same thing when we're, when we're having financial problems. We're having employment problems. Simply the fact that Jesus can meet our greatest, most significant spiritual need that we're ever going to face should show us that he's also going to meet even these really small, basic needs that we have. 
In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus doesn't tell us to ask for our annual salaries. He doesn't tell us to ask for really big, huge things. He tells us to ask for our daily bread. He tells us that that he's concerned about even the smallest things that we need on a daily basis. And simply because he has met our greatest need, our faith in him to provide for even the smallest things should be increased. With relationships, you know, it's, a, it's the same way. Because he has restored, he has reconciled, he has brought peace to the most significant relationship that we'll ever have. Our relationship with God, which was broken because we had rebelled against him and still do. But because he's brought peace to that, that should give us hope that these kind of silly problems in relationships compared to to that problem, I'm not saying that relational problems between humans are, are light or anything like that, but compared to our relationship with God, they are. And because he's fixed that for us, because he's redeemed us, because he's brought peace with God for us, we can have hope that he's also going to do these other things. When we have struggles with relationships, we can trust who he is because of what he's done. And I think that just the simple fact that Jesus leads his disciples into the boat and they follow him and he protects them should communicate things like this to us. Just look at what happens once they get in the boat. Matthew tells us, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Now for us, the word, the word great usually has a positive meaning. Matthew doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean like this was a, a good storm. It was really great for the land. It needed rain. He means it's a great big storm. It's, it's a bad storm. It's, it's a terrifying storm. The word that he actually uses is, is connected to like what we get earthquakes from. That's because this storm was so bad that it shook the boat. And that's how Matthew describes it. He's saying that uh, the, the water is spilling over this, this boat, into the boat. Now, the Sea of Galilee was known, it, it is known today, for really, really bad storms. And the reason why this is, is because the Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level. So it's, it's set low in the ground, and, and there are these mountains all around it, on every side. So that warm water, since the sea is kind of below sea level, it it heats up, it heats up the air above the lake, and it just kind of gathers there in between the mountains. And then winds come in, and they they blow this cool air down from the tops of the mountains, and it collides with the hot air. And these storms come up quickly, really badly, especially when when the storms, when the the winds come in from the east. That's, That's when the storms get the worst. And actually in 1992, so recently, these things still happen. 1992, uh, the city of Tiberias, which is on the Sea of Galilee, had waves over 10 feet high like come into the city and damage it. So if you're out in the middle on a boat, this would be a problem. And we've actually recovered a boat uh, in, in the 80s, the mid-80s. They found this boat on the Sea of Galilee that's approximately 2,000 years old. If you kind of do that math in your head, that's right around the time of Jesus. And they find this boat that's like 26 and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet, or sorry, 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and then about four and a half feet deep. Holds about 15 people. 
small boat, at least not that, not that big, four and a half feet wide. So even if it doesn't sink at all on the water, which it would, that's about five and a half feet of wave coming over the top. So if you're on this boat with 15 other guys or 14 other guys, and this storm comes up, you're going to be scared. You're going to be freaked out. It's, it's going to be violent and terrifying. And this is the situation they're in. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is taking a nap. Jesus is sleeping. He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. While, while all this is going on, while the disciples are freaking out, while waves are crashing over the boat, Jesus is asleep. And I imagine that the disciples had to be arguing about who it is that's going to go to Jesus and wake him up. And as they did that, I mean, I, one of them had to ask, I ask, how could he possibly be sleeping? I mean, I'm a heavy sleeper, but on a boat, in a storm, waves coming in, I don't think so. How how is Jesus possibly still asleep through all this? Well, lots of people say that, well, you know, Jesus was God, so he, he knew what was going to happen, which I agree with. And so because of that, because, because he knew how things would turn out, he was able to sleep. He didn't stress out about it. And so we, as people, should do the same thing. We, sh- we should trust God and, and be able to sleep. But I don't think that's really the point. I think the point here, and it's something that we're going to see uh, more and more as we go through Matthew, is we see uh, Jesus' limitation as a human, as a man, just like us, a human being, We see that limitation come face to face with his raw power as God. So these two things are kind of ironically clashing together in this story. And I think the reason why he's sleeping, he's still sleeping, is because Jesus was human and he was exhausted. He was worn out. I mean, if you just look at where we've been in the gospel, he's preached the Sermon on the Mount, right? This, This long sermon the greatest sermon ever preached on the earth. He preaches it. He comes down from the mountain and these crowds just mob him. Cleanses the leper, heals the centurion's servant. And he goes to Peter's house, heals Peter's mother-in-law. Probably wanted to get rest there. That's why they went to the house. But Matthew tells us that during the night, everybody came to the house. He cast out demons and healed people. So he, he tries to get away from the crowds. In a boat. And these two guys step forward and they delay him a little bit more. And then finally he gets in the boat and he lays down and he falls asleep. I think that we see Jesus here not calmly uh, sleeping because he knows what's going to happen. I think we see him worn out and weary from ministry. He's exhausted. So he just cashes out in the bottom of the boat. And I think that what he's showing us is that even though he's 100% God, even though he's fully divine, even though he has the power and he's going to show that power in just a little bit to silence this storm, 
He goes through what we go through as humans. He's weak like we are. This is what the author of Hebrews talks about. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is every, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because Jesus was human, because he got exhausted, because he got worn out, because he went through everything that we go through, he can sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to be worn out. He knows what it's like to, to be up in the middle of the night with your kid who won't go to sleep and not have energy, any energy to do anything. And you just you fall asleep. Jesus wasn't up because of kids. He was up because of people needing him. But it's not that much different. He can sympathize with us. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that because, because he's able to sympathize with us, we can have hope, we can have confidence that we will be given grace and mercy in our hour of need. Because he knows what it's like to feel that, to feel everything that we feel, except sin. He can sympathize with us and he'll meet our needs. I think that that truth, it's not really in Matthew, it's in Hebrews, but uh, it can fight a lie that I think all of us are prone to believe at times, and that's that, that we're all on our own. You, know, you, you, you may not think that all understand what you're going through. I may not think that you'll understand what I'm struggling with. And so the, the enemy tricks me. He makes me think that I, I have to deal with this all on my own. But Jesus sleeping in this boat. And the book of Hebrews tell us that we're not alone. He can sympathize with us. So, verse 25 tells us that, that right after the, the waves are, are coming into the boat, the storm's at its worst, the disciples finally get up the nerve to wake Jesus. So it says, And they went... And woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. They've seen Jesus do crazy things already, right? They've seen him heal a leper by touching him, which, which nobody's supposed to be able to do. They see him heal this servant simply by giving the word. Peter sees him heal his own mother-in-law, like right in front of him. And so they believe that he can do great things. He spent the whole night healing people and casting out demons. And so now that they're in this storm and things are getting really bad, they think he can do something about it. So they, they wake him up and say, save us, we're going to die. And these aren't people that have never been in a boat before. I mean, if, if I'm on a boat and, and the storm's even a, a mild one, I would probably be scared for my life. But these guys are fishermen. They spent their lives on the Sea of Galilee. They, they know what it's like but they're in a place where they think that if he doesn't do something, they're all going to die. And so they wake him up and ask him to intervene. But look at how he responds. Verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So it's not just the wind and seas that get rebuked by Jesus. The disciples get rebuked too. He says, he calls them, O you of little faith. This word that he uses, it occurs five times in the New Testament. 
Every single one of those times, it's in reference to the disciples. These people who are supposed to have great faith. Supposed to be the, 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 the leaders of the early church. Every time somebody says something about someone having little faith, faith it's the disciples. They get called this. Nobody else does, just them. But we have to ask, why does Jesus say they have little faith here? I mean, aren't aren't they showing that they have faith by waking him up? Don't don't they wake him up because they believe? They They have faith that he can do something about it? Don't they wake him up because they've seen him do these great things? They, they know that he has power. They know that he has authority. And so they believe that in the situation they're in, he can save them. And so that's why they wake him up. Aren't they showing faith? I think the answer to that question is yes. They are showing faith. So if they have faith, why does Jesus rebuke them for having little faith? The problem is because their faith is misplaced. They believe that that he can solve their problem. They believe that he can calm the wind and the waves. They believe that he has the authority to save their life. But the problem is, is that they don't have faith in who he is. The fact that they are scared the fact that they are afraid shows that they've missed something about Jesus. You see, up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, his, his whole purpose has been to show that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why at the very beginning of the Gospel, he, he spends all that time showing us with, with historical data that Jesus is Abraham's son and Jesus is David's son. And then time and time and time and time and time again, Matthew says Jesus did this, he did that, in order to fulfill the Old Testament. Matthew even gives us this this whole chunk of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that no other author in the New Testament gives us where Jesus teaches us the true intent of the Old Testament law. So Matthew's trying to tell the Jews through his gospel, through what he's writing, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he's trying to highlight. And a couple weeks ago, when we covered that passage about Jesus healing the leper, we saw that Jesus is concerned about the same exact thing. He, he heals this leper, he touches him, he does, does a miraculous thing, and then he tells the leper not to say anything about it. He tells him to be silent. And he does that because he doesn't want the fact that he's done something miraculous to be the thing that spreads. He wants people to know that he's the Messiah. He wants people to recognize that and not just see him as some guy who can do really cool things. And his disciples have missed that point. They see him as the one who can do cool things. That's why they wake him up. They want him to do another one. But they should know that he's the Messiah. They should know that he's the Son of God. These two demons are going to point that out. They should know that the Messiah can't die in a boat. The Messiah isn't going to be taken out by by some storm. He's the Son of God. He's the one who conquers creation, not the other way around. And so their faith is little because they don't realize who He is. 
They don't realize that he's been sent on a mission by God and and nothing is going to stop him from fulfilling it. Not a storm, not anyone. He lays his life down. No one takes it from him. And they've missed that. And then, Jesus proves it. He proves it in what he does. Matthew tells us that then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So he stands up. I imagine that he probably yelled something at the storm, and it stops. And there's no doubt here in what's happened that this is a miraculous event. You see, because even, even if you know, the wind just so happened to stop at that moment, the momentum of the waves would have kept going. It, it, they would have continued. It wouldn't just all die down and be calm at once. And I imagine that this would have been kind of eerie. To be in a boat, that the winds are raging, that the waters are raging, the boat is violently shaking, and then all of a sudden, it's kind of gently rocking in still water. Like that. Jesus rebukes the sea and creation listens to him. It stops. Not because of the authority that he has, not because of the power that he has, but because of who he is. He's the creator. So he can tell it what to do and it listens. And then look at the disciples' reaction. Verse 28. 27, sorry. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? They're amazed. This word is almost a, like, they were disturbed to the point that they don't really know if they should feel good about it or feel bad about it. Just something that happens that they're uncertain about. It's like a shocked uncertainty. And then they ask, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're finally asking the right question here. They're asking, who is this man? Who is this man that can do these things? Before they could just been focusing on, on what he's done, and now they're trying to figure out who he is. We're going to have to wait till next week till Matthew gives us the answer through the mouth of two demon-possessed guys. But they tell us what we already know, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he can do these things. The storm displays his power as both the one who can create it and the one who can calm it. He does that because he is the Son of God, because he is the Messiah, because he's the one sent on a mission. Now, I think one important thing we need to realize is that with the disciples, we might be tempted to marvel at the fact that even the winds and seas obey him. It's a pretty amazing thing. It's shocking. But what's far more miraculous than that 
is the fact that we obey him. Humanity, more than any other aspect of creation, has been the part that has rebelled against God more than anything. From the very beginning, He created us in His image. And we responded poorly. We, we use that for selfish and prideful ambitions. We use the gifts and abilities He's given us as the pinnacle of His creation to, to malign Him, to spit in His face. You see, the wind and the waves, when he speaks to them, they stop. You know, they don't rationalize or, or justify or, or make an excuse and say, oh, you know, I, I just really like splashing a lot. And, and if you were a God who, who loves, you would just let me do that. They obey him. And even though we're rebellious, we know that he sent his son to redeem us. He sent his son to redeem all of creation, but us most importantly. This this same son who calms the storm, the same son who the wind and seas obey, dies on a cross. He's buried. He, He rises again. And that event brings us redemption. It brings us restoration. And the best thing is that the good news doesn't stop there. Really, that should be good enough. But for God, it's not. Through the grace of the gospel, we become enabled to obey. So that with the disciples, we can ask, who is this man? But even men and women obey him. That should be miraculous to us. That should be shocking to us. When we get up in the morning and read our Bible. We don't do that naturally. When we come to church on Sunday night, that should be miraculous to us. Because we're overcoming who we are as someone who rebels against God because of God's grace working in us. So Jesus, in this passage, He demonstrates who He is. He rebukes the disciples because they miss it. And we don't want to receive that rebuke. We want to see him as the Messiah, as the one sent from God, as the Son of God who creates the world. And because of that, all creation will obey him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son and that you sent him as a man and that he experiences all that we experienced except sin. And because of that, your word tells us that he can sympathize with us and that he intercedes for us. And that the grace we have in Christ through his life, his perfect life, 
and his death on our behalf, paying the penalty that we deserve for all our rebellion, brings us grace. And not just the grace of the forgiveness of our past and even our present and our future, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit which equips us to be his disciples. And so we ask that you would help us see who he is. That who he is would give us hope. That we would seek you not for just what you give us and what you do, but for who you are. We ask that you would help us to be more like the winds and the sea. And that when you speak, we would listen. Obey. We thank you for Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.